Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. I feel like I have so much to say. I, just, I was just preaching in uh, Kenny's class in Life Fellowship. And I think this is the first time I've ever preached two different sermons back to back. And so I'm feeling a little jumbled. Um, but I do have a message today from Acts chapter 24. So let's go ahead and turn there and let's refresh our memory on where we're at in Acts chapter 24. In our story, there's been kind of a strange turn of events. If you remember, Paul went to uh, Jerusalem to worship. And uh, he was hoping to go and to build relationships with some of the Jewish people there, some of the Jewish believers there. He was going to bring a gift, an offering, uh, because there had been uh, some, some poverty and famine that was taking place in Jerusalem. So he was coming to bear a gift. While he was there, uh, he went to go worship in the temple. And at that time there, some, some Jews who were from Asia Minor, surrounding regions, who were familiar with the work of Paul... They made accusation against him there in the streets, and they drew him out of the temple, and there was a big commotion. Remember the commotion? It's riotous in nature. And uh, so everybody's, you know, been out of shape and yelling and screaming, and the chief captain of the Roman centurions there in Jerusalem comes in, and he pulls Paul away, and uh, there's, a, there's a big hubbub, and they get him out of the way, and then they, they have this moment where he's trying to make sense of it, and the Sanhedrin just make it worse. Right? The, the religious leaders come and they get involved and they just make the situation more confusing. And then there was this, this part in our story where Paul's nephew overheard some Jewish men saying that they were plotting to kill Paul. And so by night, they, they took Paul, the, the, the uh, Roman leaders took Paul out of Jerusalem and brought him to Caesarea. And they brought him before the governor there in Caesarea. There was a Roman headquarters there. And they brought him before this guy named Felix. He was the governor of Caesarea. And so there was a little bit of a, a trial, a hearing. We'll call it a hearing. And they had a hearing. And the Sanhedrin brought their accusations. And then, and then Paul very articulately made a refutation. He defended himself before the Sanhedrin and before Felix and as Paul does, he's just so masterful in the way that he pre presents information. He has a way of boiling things down to the most simple things. And, 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 and if we remember the last time we were together, Paul kind of concludes that, that dialogue by saying, look, everything that they said is false. One by one, he goes down. Everything they said about me is false. If you want to know the truth about what they're mad about, they're mad about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're mad... Because I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he came into this earth to save mankind, and he did that by shedding his blood and dying for us that we might be set free and forgiven. And he rose again the third day, and I believe in that, and they're angry about it, and they want to kill me for it. And that's kind of where we're at. Now, we're going to look at this guy named Felix today. He's going to be the uh, kind of the point of our study today. And we're going to look at his character uh, because his heart and his mind were fixed on worldly gain, and he was a foolish man. Hence, the title of our message today is, what happened? It didn't preserve the... I get so upset when the type doesn't make it. You know, like you put... You use a good font, and you're excited about the font, 
and then it doesn't somehow, I preserve the font. I did the whole font preservation preference thing and everything. So I don't know what the deal is. I'm going to blame Sam. Um, I'm joking. I'm giving you a hard time. So the title of the message is The Bondage of Foolishness. And we're going to talk about what foolishness is and why it is ultimately bondage and how so many people that we know, maybe even people in this room, I'm not, we're not going to accuse you of being a fool, okay? If the shoe fits, wear it. Um, but, but there are people in the world that, that are foolish and they're walking around living foolish lives and they, they don't even know. And that's the most heartbreaking thing. And we're going to talk about that today. But before we do, uh, you guys, we've been studying Proverbs in Tuesday night prayer. If you join us on Tuesday nights, Sam has been in Proverbs and he's been walking us through chapter by chapter through Proverbs. And, and as many of you know, the, the book of Proverbs is referred to as one of the, the wisdom books. And that's because it talks a heck of a lot about wisdom, right? In fact, I did a little research and learned that the word wise and the word wisdom appear 121 times in Proverbs. Okay, it's a lot of time, a lot of times, right? You guys are hooping about that? Like I heard that over there? Um, but that's like relative to what? You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, the word that was probably in there like 400 times, but <laughs> the... The is in there 473 times. It. No, I'm joking. But yeah, so no, 121 times. That's, it's, it's a lot of times in a pretty, pretty small book. It's not huge. And so wisdom comes up a lot. But the, other, the thing about that is that, the, that if we were to look at a secondary topic, as is much of the wisdom books, there are lots of paradoxes, right? So on one hand, you have wisdom. But on the other hand, you have foolishness to compare it to. And the word fool, foolish, or foolishness are mentioned 58 times. So not quite as many, but quite a bit. You see the topic of foolishness come up. And in that study of Proverbs, what we discover about foolishness is that the fool is someone who's a busybody. I think that's the next slide here. The fool is someone who's a busybody. That's often talked about in Proverbs. They're gossipy. They're always getting into other people's business talking about things that they ought not talk about. That's, that's what the fools do, okay? So we can right now, even in our mind, ask ourselves, are we foolish? Do you gossip? Do you, do you talk about other people? Do you evil surmise of other people, make conjecture? I mean, we do this, and that act is, is foolishness. Foolish people do that. It also talks about how the idea that the foolish people are concerned with self-interest. Their primary concern is what they can get out of any given situation, all right? We all know that we can be foolish, the, uh, foolish in this way. A lot of us are concerned with our self-interest above other people. The world thinks this way. We know that. Also, foolish people have a sharp tongue and a lying tongue, okay? They run their mouth a lot, and they have a tendency to be kind of sharp with their wit or sarcastic or, or, or biting with their language, uh, but also they, they trust in how they feel, First and foremost, they're not thinking about external sources of truth. They, the truth that guides them is gut feeling, how they feel about any particular topic. And we know that our world of therapy and psychology, uh, how you feel is the most important thing in 2021 in a postmodern world. We live in a psychological age where we trust how we feel above everything else. And the Bible calls that foolish. And ultimately, if we were to sum it up, a, a fool is any person more concerned about personal gratification 
than confronting the truth of who God is. That's what a fool is. And in today's sermon, we're going to watch what happens when the wisdom of the gospel meets the foolishness of our flesh. That's what we're going to do. Is everybody prepared for that? You've turned to Acts chapter 24. Your finger is there. Okay, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord that he'd be with us and help us to learn. Because the things of God's word are only discerned by the power of the Spirit. God's Spirit, because these are divine truths, the average person, their ears are stu- uh, uh, stuffed up. They can't, they can't hear the truth, right? That's the average person. They're unwilling. They're foolish. And the only way that, that the truth can come to foolish people just like us is if the Holy Spirit uh, gives us a way. So, you Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out even right now, that we could learn things that are really unlearnable in our flesh. We can know a lot of knowledge about the Bible. We could grow up in church and hear all the stories and, and, and get some sort of idea of theology. And we might have some sort of doctrinal understanding, but the truth lived out in our lives, that's actually impossible without the empowerment of your spirit. And so, Lord, we're asking for your help. We're asking that your spirit would move us, that it would make our, our ears open and our mind uh, open and available and our hearts open. Uh, so that, that your word can penetrate in us and cultivate in us conformity to Jesus Christ. And for some people today, if, if that means that they need to, for, for the very first time, come to the saving knowledge of who you are. Like if, they, if there's people in the room right now who have to reckon whether or not they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, would you give them the freedom to see that today? And God, if, it's, if there's believers here today that recognize in their own life that they're, that they're living foolishly, because uh, they're not submitted and yielded to you, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that as well. And so, God, we ask for your help. We ask for the revelation of your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here we are. So, Felix heard these things. Verse 22, he, uh, Felix heard these things, the things that Paul was saying about the resurrection. And Paul makes his defense, and he's talking about the resurrection. And Felix hears all these things, and it says, having more perfect knowledge of that way. Okay, so that's talking about Felix. Felix had a more perfect knowledge of that way, meaning that Felix was actually familiar with this this idea of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He knew the story as a governor in Caesarea, the story of this Jesus guy raising from the dead. Uh, It was creating a hubbub uh, among the Judeans, and so for him, he would have had some familiarity with the way. Now, that's not, again, we're not, that's not Felix, you know, referencing Mandalorian, okay? If you've been with us in Acts, you realize that in the early church, it was common for people to refer to the followers of Jesus Christ as people who followed in the way. And there is only one way, right? It's the way. There is one way, and that way is Jesus Christ. And many of us are, are following the ways that maybe we prefer, okay? And we're, we're, we're following this path or that path in life. But, but at the end of the day, there is one way. Okay, and, and sadly, many people won't figure that out until they've breathed their last breath. And so we need to recognize while we live that there is one way. Now, Felix was familiar with the way, though he wasn't saved. He'd heard about Jesus Christ. In verse 22, it says, And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come, I will know the uttermost of your matter. 
Okay, so who is Lysias? Lysias is that chief captain that we've seen in the previous chapters, the guy that kind of intervened for Paul. So we've seen his character. Now, what Felix is saying here is, I don't want to make a judgment. I don't want to make a decision. I need more evidence. I want to know what's really going on in this situation. Let's wait until, Felix, uh, until Lysias comes, and when he comes, I'll consult him, and I'll, I'll draw some sort of conclusion. The truth of the matter is that this is just Felix appeasing the Jews that were there, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. Okay? He had, no, he had no interest in either setting Paul free or killing him. He just wanted to, be, he wanted to make them uh, complacent. He wanted them to settle down. Everything is going to be okay. I don't want to stir you up, so I'll keep Paul in jail. Uh, I won't make a decision. I'll, let's wait until Lysias comes, and I'll, I'll consult him on it more fully. In verse 23, and he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty that he should forbid none of his acquaintances uh, to minister or come unto him. In other words, this is the equivalent of house arrest. Anybody ever been on house arrest? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not going to do that to you. Okay. But the thing about house arrest is that you have a, some level of, of liberty, right? Um, it's not like actually being in prison, which sounds miserable. Uh, this way you can, you know, they're tracking your movements. And in, in the case of Rome during this time, uh, a lot of times Rome would pro provide some basic provisions, maybe some, some very modest amounts of food every day. But people were allowed to come visit Paul. And they were, they were allowed to bring him food. And maybe even, you know, oftentimes you hear Paul say, hey, I need you to bring my parchments. I've got some writing to do. And he makes these, these requests of people to come bring him stuff. A lot of the times what we're talking about is this moment right here where Paul is actually in prison and his friends are bringing him stuff because he's on house arrest. All right, so, so Paul's on house arrest. And, um, and there's this, in verse 24, this interesting thing is that Felix wants to hear. Okay, so this is, what we're talking about is a time frame in which philosophy was, was very common. Greek philosophy was very important uh, in, the, in the world in that time. And rich and wealthy people would often have famous philosophers come into their home and speak and teach. And they were very open to listening to men teach. And so Felix is going to make requests to Paul. Hey, come teach me and my wife, Drusilla. We want to hear from you more as it concerns this strange belief that you have. So verse 24 says, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which, by the way, sounds like Cruella, this woman, I mean, Drusilla... Don't, anybody in here ever name their, their kids Drusilla? It's a hideous name, isn't it? The worst name ever, Drusilla. It, sound, it sounds like a, like a, a bad guy in a, in a Disney film. So her name's Drusilla, uh, which was a Jewess. And he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now... Let's talk about a little bit about who Felix and Drusilla were, what history tells us about who they are. Felix was actually born a slave, right, which is a pretty incredible thing. He was born into slavery. His mother uh, was, was the, he treated uh, Antonia, who was actually Claudius Caesar's mother, as his mother. He was a slave in the same house that Claudius Caesar was in, and he was raised by his family. And in time, he must have built a relationship with this family because they decided actually to set him free from his slavery. They set him free from bondage. 
And what history tells us is that Felix and his brother Pallas, which is I'm not 100% sure if that's how you say it, but that's how I'm going to say it, P-A-L-L-A-S, that they were, uh, they were quite the team. They were connivers. They were very cunning. And, you know, as you can imagine, coming up from a very modest place like a position of slavery, they, he found ways of, of living and surviving and making a way in the world. And so he was a very cunning man, and him and his brother actually built wealth uh, in, in what's referred to as kind of corrupt manners. They had ways of making money. We would call this a hustler. They were hustling. And they made their way up, right? And they made some money. And in time, uh, as was also common in Rome, Felix kind of bought his way into positions of power. And so he came into the governorship uh, by probably corrupt means. He, he, he paid his way in, and now he's in this position of power. Now, uh, history tells us that he was just an awful human being, okay? Just terrible. And uh, he was willing to do just about anything for money and wealth. And uh, as, you know, as most people that have a story like his maybe, maybe think that way. Now, as it concerns Drusilla, her story is interesting too because she comes from the fa- family of Herod. Do you guys remember uh, Herod Agrippa I from Acts chapter 12? Uh, this guy was a Jew. He was Judean, but he was in a position of power in Jerusalem, and he, he, he held the position of king, right? That's what, uh, they refer to the, these governorships sometimes as kingships. And he was the king in Jerusalem. And remember the story where he comes out and he's, he just killed, uh, I believe it was James, was just martyred. And he comes out and he's receiving the praise of the crowds of the Jews. And then God smites him dead. And the worms eat his flesh like right in that moment. It's like a gross story. You got to go back and read it. It's gross. It's like something out of a horror film. The worms just start eating his flesh as he's dying because he's receiving the praise of men. He's re- He's receiving praise as if he was God, right? And so that's her dad, all right? And her brother was King, Agrippa the, or, uh, King Herod Agrippa II. And so she was, uh, she was supposed to be really beautiful. And she was, at age 16, actually married off to some other dude. And then when Felix saw her, he saw how beautiful she was. He stole her away from this guy she was married to. She, she divorced that guy and then married Felix. So if that tells you anything about these individuals, um, they suck. They suck. They suck pretty bad. <laughs> so they're this power couple, and they're really wicked. And and this is who is keeping Paul contained. Now, they invite Paul to come teach them, and that's the moment that we're coming to now in verse twenty-five. Is Paul reasoning with them? Verse twenty-five says, "And he reasoned." Now we talk about this. The word "reason" comes up a lot. Right? Paul addresses people and he reasons with them when he's preaching. And when we talk about reasoning, what we mean is that, that actually the gospel is very logical. The truth of God's word is very, very logical. It's reasonable. And so anyone that knows it well actually has the capacity, the ability to reason from the scriptures and to convince people who don't know Christ to believe on him. And that's because it's a... It's, There's no refuting a perfect text. This book right here is perfect in every way. People have worked for 2,000 years at finding contradictions in this book. 
right? Because there's so many authors from different time periods, over 1,500 years it was written, from different regions, different types of people. You would think when all those texts came together, there would have to be contradictions there, right? And people work really hard at finding contradictions in Scripture. But the truth is, because it's a divine text, it fits together like a perfect puzzle. And every person that's ever come up with an argument against the Bible and against Christ has been met with a perfect refutation from those who know it well. This is a reasonable book. And we can reason from it. And Paul did just that. He reasoned from the scriptures. Now, in this case, he reasons in a very specific way. And in this verse, in verse 25, what we're going to see is the most concise gospel presentation that we could ever find in scripture. What does it say? It says, as he reasoned of righteousness... Temperance and judgment to come. Righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And so let's look at these three things, and let's look at his gospel presentation, and then we'll talk about why Felix may have rejected it, okay? The first thing it says is he preached righteousness. Well, why is righteousness so significant to the gospel? Why is that such an important thing? Because the reason is because a holy God demands a righteous people. A holy God demands righteous servants. That's what he demands. Now, because of sin, because of what Romans 5.12 teaches us, right, is that sin passed upon to all humankind. And so it's bad news that we are not righteous. We're born into unrighteousness, in fact. Every one of us that was that was born into this world, was born into sin. That is our corruption. That's the card that we were dealt. Thanks a lot, Adam. Man, that dude, right? Uh, Don't be mad. You would have done the same thing, okay? Um, And so here's the deal. Uh, We are unrighteous people, and God will not have wickedness in his presence because righteousness is purity. Righteousness is holy perfection. And you, in your natural state, are not that. You don't get access to God. God cannot have wickedness in his presence. And so you better believe that in in, in his holy throne room, in the heavenlies, he will not permit just anyone to come in there. This is what uh, uh, 1 John 5, 17 says. All unrighteousness is sin. In other words, it makes an an, uh, equivalency between our sin and our unrighteous state of being. And there is a sin not unto death. Okay, so this is actually the problem. God requires man to be righteous in order to be in his presence. That's what he requires. Be ye holy because I am holy. That's what he says. That's his request on mankind. And because righteousness is a life without sin, all of us are in big trouble. Because in our natural state, we'll never get to heaven and we'll never get to be with him. That's just the truth of the matter. This is a serious problem for each of us individually. But here's what scripture says. Romans 3.10. Okay, Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Okay, so this is more bad news. Okay, you're not righteous. Not a one of us is. We're all gross, wicked. And then what Paul does here in this, in this chapter in Romans is he goes through and quotes a bunch, of, a bunch of scripture from the Old Testament. A lot of it comes from Psalms. In verse 11 he says... There is none that understandeth. 
There is none that seeketh after God. In our natural state, we don't want anything to do with God. And some of you are in that place right now. You're keeping God at arm's length because in your natural state, you don't want God. They're all gone out of the way, right? There's that word, the, that phrase, the way again, right? They're together, together become unprofitable. Nothing that they can do can garner any real profit, not any eternal profit anyway. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat, this is kind of gross, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps, which is like a snake, is under their lips. This is who we are in our natural state. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay, well, what does all that mean? What does that mean? What that means is even if you wanted to follow God, you wanted to follow the law of God, you saw, okay, I see what holiness is, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on my best behavior. I'm going to do all the good things. I'm going to be a good student at school. I'm going to be a good employee at my job. I'm going to walk old ladies across the street. Okay? All right? I'm going to do all of the good things. Then God will have to accept me. But the truth is, the law actually condemns you. Because if you offend in one matter, you offend in the whole. In other words, if you've ever lied or if you said something evil about something, or the Bible talks about this in Matthew, if you've even thought evil of a person or thought lustfully against a person, it's as bad as actually committing the, the act of murder or adultery, fornication, just by thinking the thought. That's how disgusting you are. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty bad. If you offend in one way, you offend, offend in the whole. So there's not one of us who is worthy, no matter how good we are, of standing in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's super important to understand. And this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need Jesus. He is our intercessor. And the way the Bible talks about it is that the shedding of his blood covers the multitude of our sins. In other words, all of those sins, whether big or small or whatever they might be that you have in your life, it's Jesus Christ's blood. It's the blood that he shed in his resurrection that gives us the ability to be forgiven before a holy God. And what the Bible says is that God imputes righteousness to, him, to us. So Romans 3.22, the passage continues on and explains this a little bit more. It says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, that's how, that's how you get righteousness, is through faith, is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. I love that word through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, 
that he might be that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. There's a lot to unpack there. We don't have time to do it, but this is what we ought to know: is that Jesus Christ gives righteousness as a gift to anyone who has faith in him. Okay, so his death, burial, and resurrection was just the grace that we needed to get righteousness. But the thing is that you have to believe. You have to have faith. So the word of God is clear on this matter, and that leads us to our key point number one. We'll only have a few key points today. Key point number one, the only way to righteousness is through the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. You don't have to believe me. I'm just telling you, that's what this divine holy book that came down through the voice of God to us is telling us. I mean, if you're convinced that you've got a better way, that's fine. You get to do that. You get to make that decision. Free will is the gift that God gave you, and you get to go whatever direction you want away, whatever direction you want to go. But the truth of the matter is that if we want righteousness, if we want eternal life, if we want heaven after we die, there's only one way of getting that, and that's through the grace of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, next he preached temperance. Okay, what's temperance? That's kind of an old-fashioned word. We don't use that a whole lot. Temperance is the ability to operate control over your body, soul, and mind. Now, a lot of us like to think that we're under control of our body, soul, and mind, but we make decisions every day that are fairly impulsive. We're not really under control, even if we think we have the illusion of being under control. Now, some translations um, of, of Scripture translate this into the English, this word temperance, into self-control. Now, I actually think that that's not a very good translation, okay? Um, The truer and more accurate way of thinking about this is that temperance is God control over our life. In other words, we we don't enact some sort of extra level of discipline and like focus and attention to gain self-control over our lives. The Christian actually yields their life to God, and they allow his Holy Spirit to control their actions, thoughts, and their their behavior. This is important because there are many disciplined people who practice self-control and are yet still very self-willed. You can be under great self-control. You know, I do these things, my body is a temple, and you do the things that you eat right the right ways, and you're a disciplined person. You know, and you do, and you're good, you're on good behavior, and yet you're a very self-willed, selfish, disgusting person who's completely unrighteous. So when we talk about self-control, that's not good enough. We need to be under God's control. And what we need is to be under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit in order to practice God's will. So this is a truth that, truth that every believer and non-believer needs to be aware of. So here's the deal. If you know Christ, if you know Christ, and yet you're, de- you're perverting or denying the power of the Holy Spirit over your life, shame on you. Because you still have a free will and you still have a flesh, you have the ability to deny the Spirit that God's given you, and you can act any old way you want to. But if you do that, if you choose to d- indulge sin in your life, shame on you, Christian, for being a hypocrite. You need to, you need to go back to the first things. You need to go back to a place where you remember that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and because he died for you, you ought to die for him. 
You ought to put your flesh, you ought to crucify your flesh, mortify your flesh daily so that holy, the Holy Spirit can control you. That's a big deal. Otherwise, you're not going to actually ever be a real disciple of Jesus Christ. You're just lying to yourself. You've got to learn to let God's will control your life. So don't be discontent with God. Yield to his word. But if you are a believer, like in other words, you're here today and, and you're not sure. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you haven't actually given your life to him. Or, or maybe you're not even sure what you believe. Or maybe you're here and you're like, no, I'm an atheist. Okay? Or an agnostic even. Maybe you're a deist in the way that you think. I, I want to I warn you. Okay, I just want to very simply warn you is that what that means is that you're, you're only going to ever be able to just enact self-will over your life. And that hasn't done you very good so far. And the reason I know that, because I used to be you. A lot of people in this room were at one point, everybody in this room at one point was unrighteous. And they were going their own way. They were going a way that was good in their own eyes. And the result of that was just a lot of selfish behavior and just consequences, day in and day out, the consequences of your own decision-making. Here's the warning that Paul gave Felix, and it's the warning that I want to give you, is that you're never going to be satisfied in this life until you've learned what it means to give your life over to Christ and let his Holy Spirit control you from day to day. Now, that might sound real crazy to you. It might sound kind of cultish to you. I don't care what you think it sounds like. I'm just telling you, it's been real good for me. Because my way was only just destruction. And the decisions that I made were never really good. And it wasn't until I chose to let Jesus Christ and his spirit control my life that I actually began to actually have real control and real freedom. And this is the message that's being preached to Felix. Felix was a man given over to fleshly indulgences. Don't we know that about him already? We learned that. And he was a man that celebrated and practiced his own self-will to his own selfish ends. This is how he behaved. This is how he lived. And that leads us to our next key point. Paul's message to Felix is our key point. The only way to a temperate life is yielding to Jesus. And if you don't have him, if he hasn't made you righteous, then you can't do that. You can't actually yield him. For Felix to hear a message of temperance would have run counter to everything in his whole life. Like everything in his life was selfish. Everything in his life was self-will. And so for him to hear this would be very uncomfortable, this idea of temperance. Lastly, it says that Paul preached the judgment to come. Judgment to come. Now, we've heard Paul preach sermons on the judgment before. Let's go, let's go back and revisit one of those, can we? Acts chapter 17, verse 30. And the, it says this. And the time, this is Paul preaching Okay, just a few chapters from where we're at. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. In other words, God's so gracious and so merciful that he watches these, this, the culture of people sinning. He looks at society as a whole, and he sees people sinning against him. And he was very, it says it winked, he winked at it. In other words, he was permissive. He let it unfold. He was willing to put up with it for a season, but there's a season coming where he will not put up with it. God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. In other words, Jesus Christ came. You got no more excuses. He's not putting up with it. You've got to make a decision. Don't put off the decision. Quit putting off the decision. Jesus Christ came to bring you to a crossroads. 
so that you would make a determination about what you believe and you would decide either to yield to him or not. So, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Okay, when we say judgment to come, what we mean is that one day every human being will stand before Jesus Christ and will be, will be judged based on this, their lives and, and, and the sin within your life. Every person will be judged. Now here's the, the way that that works. Is that those who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will gain access to heaven for eternity. Because when, when, when God looks at them, He'll see them through the lens of Jesus Christ. When he looks upon me because I've put my faith in Jesus Christ and I know that I'm a saved person, I I didn't earn that. Again, I'm I'm filthy and and disgusting and unrighteous, but the thing is that when God the Father looks at me, he won't be able to help but see Jesus Christ. And he'll see me through the lens of Jesus Christ, and when he looks upon me, he'll see righteousness. But there will be people who stand before the throne, and they'll be judged based on their good works and their sin. And guess what? It won't add up. It won't add up. The balances won't be tipped in your favor. That's not how it works. We already talked about that. He will only see unrighteousness in those people. And I hate to break the news to you, but the Bible is very clear on this. So I don't know if you've been listening to other theologians or other people talk, but there is a hell. It is a very real place. Hell quite literally means eternal death and the separation of self from God for eternity. It is a place of fire. It is a place of torment. And God does send people there. And that is his judgment on mankind. The Bible is incredibly explicit on this. And this is part of the judgment to come. And it's critical that every person realize. Here's the deal. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Every one of us has done this. When you're laying in your bed at night and you think to yourself, I wonder what happens when life is over. Like if I was to die, does my spirit just absorb into the ethereal plane? Do I cease to exist? Am I reincarnated? We, we have lots of different thoughts about these things, but the thing is, none of those things really bring anybody peace. See, for the believer, for the person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they can rest well. They can close their eyes at night, and they can say, if I don't wake up in the morning, I know where I'll be. And this is super important. God sent his son to make a way for all mankind to gain his righteousness, to receive his grace, And all who've received him will spend eternity with him in heaven. Key point number three. The only way way to avoid judgment is the safety of Jesus. The only way to avoid judgment is the safety of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's our safety. Now, to this message, this very simple preaching that Paul presents to Felix on righteousness and temperance and judgment, Felix had a response. Felix had a response. 
And this is what it says. Verse 25, and Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. See, it says that Felix trembled. And what that means is that that at some level, at some level, he recognized he didn't add up. He recognized there was lack. See, the fear came into him because he realized that what Paul was saying was true. Man, that's so many people, isn't it? So many people, they hear the gospel message, and maybe this is even you right now, and there's a level of trembling. There's a level of fear. And yet they know because 10 minutes from now, this sermon will be over, and they'll be able to get into their car and drive away, that somehow they've escaped everything we've talked about today. That's delusional thinking. That's, that's, That's lying to yourself. That's exactly what Felix did. That's exactly what makes Felix foolish. It's because he heard the truth of who Christ was. It resonated in his ears. It resonated in his heart. He trembled before Paul. And yet he said, hey man, go your way. We'll catch up some other time. It's been, it's been real. Um, I'm going to go do this now. Man, that's so many of us. That's so many of us have done that to God and are doing that to God, and you're in danger of doing that again even today. See, check this out. Felix had spent his whole life escaping the bondage of slavery. The poverty of slavery, right? He was working his way out of the poverty. Like, now I'm not a slave. Now I've got to make some money. And so he's working his way out of the poverty that came with being a slave. The culture of slavery, he worked his whole life at trying to shed himself of that reputation that people might look at him as something different than a slave. And yet at the end of the day, he chose to be a slave rather than set free. He chose at the end of the day, after all that hard work and all of that hating being a slave, and hating what he came from, at the end of the day, because of his rejection of the gospel, because his foolish behavior, because of his foolish decision-making, he chose slavery over freedom. It's a very sad story. And this is what foolishness is in the eyes of God. Because here's the deal, he's done everything to win you. God has done everything to win you. He's gone way out of his way. Well, you know, if I could just see God, or if he just reveal himself to me, maybe then I'd believe. Bullcrap. That's not true. Quit lying to yourself. He's already done everything necessary to win you. This book is the evidence that he's done everything. See, God sent his only begotten son into this world 
to face rejection, humiliation, the creator of the universe spat upon, the beard plucked from his face, carrying, carrying a cross that he never deserved up a hill, pierced in his side, bled and died for you, that you might have victory. And you've got excuses not to receive that? Like God hasn't done enough for you? God's done everything for you. And yet so many of us would rather just go our own way. For what? For what? What do you have to gain going your way? What is it that's out there that you could possibly want or that if you got, you'd be pleased with? You'd be gratified and satisfied with life. What's out there? You tell me what it is. Wealth? A good job? A family? Fame? People recognizing you as important or gifted? None of that is righteousness. None of that will satisfy you. None of it will bring you peace. You will still go to sleep and think the exact same thoughts you were thinking the day before. Proverbs 17, 24 says, Wisdom is before him that hath understanding. But the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth. And what that means is that the foolish person is is willing to look anywhere else but to God. See, the wise person, they're looking at understanding. They want to understand who God is and his character. And they're looking this direction. But the fool, the fool is like, I heard that. I've got something out here that I've got to focus on. That's the fool. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable things. There is none that doeth good. And I wonder today, if after hearing all of this, that you can recognize and be honest enough with yourself to say, you know what? I'm the fool. Because for a long time in my heart, I've been saying, there is no God. And, and maybe in this moment, you recognize the, the, the faulty thinking in that. that. That's actually, that's counterintuitive to the truth. Maybe, maybe you're realizing that for the, for the very first time. Can I, can I read one more scripture to you? I want to have the worship team come up. I want to read one more passage that I believe reflects God's heart towards you. Okay, so let's do that real quick. You know, maybe it's just Uriah that comes up. I don't know. But let's come, worship team, if you can come up real quick. Because you're going to be a distraction. So we already know that. So come on. Oh, Seth, whoever. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Seth, please. Thanks, bro. Um, 
Let's look at this passage because I, I believe what it does is it sheds just, it's, this is all I've got, and we're going to be done. And we're going to have an invitation. Leaders will be up here to meet with people. If you've got something on your heart that you want to work through, maybe it's your own, your own salvation. Maybe it's this issue of righteousness. Maybe it's an issue of temperance. You know that God isn't control, in control of your life, and you want to yield yourself. Please come forward and meet with the leader. But here's the thing I want to end with today. Is that as it concerns God and his perspective on you, You mean everything to him. Matthew 16, verse 26 says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And what God is saying to us is this. Even if if you could gain everything in this world, that's not as valuable to him or to you as one soul. The Bible says that when one soul accepts Jesus Christ on the terms of the gospel, that the angels in heaven rejoice. In other words, celestial beings that we can't even see that exist in the fifth dimension are looking down upon you. And the moment you decide that, yes, I'm giving up on me and I'm giving my life to Jesus in repentance of my sin, God, please forgive me, I believe. The moment that you do that, that the angels in heaven rejoice over one soul. That's how valuable your soul is. That's how valuable you are. And what I want to ask as we go into our time of invitation and singing, that you wouldn't waste this time. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. In other words, don't put it off because you're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe. Today is the day to give your life to God. So don't hesitate. Don't wait. Come forward. There's people here. Like, let me just tell you, there's people in this room that love you even if they don't know you. And they're going to be standing up here And if you know you need Jesus Christ, please come forward. Let's deal with whatever we've got today. Because God is worth being right with. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And God, in a room this big, I know that there's people from every background and every spectrum of thought. And so as I'm preaching and, and getting riled up and Some people are listening attentively. Some people are trembling uh, because your word does that. Uh, There are people that are are unsure. They've got questions. They've got more questions to ask. Okay, so be it, God. Would you work and deal with people's hearts right now? And Lord, as we enter into this time of worship, would you draw people out of their seats to come forward? And would you cause people to choose to deal with sin and to come before you and lay hold on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he might impute righteousness to them. God, we thank you for what you've done. We know you've done everything for us. We didn't deserve it. We need you. Meet us where we're at, please, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, For service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, 
please visit our website at caya.live.com.